Hi, and welcome to the February edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have two great new papers to review. The first with Dr. Chris Riggs, who will be discussing diagnosis of Palmer osteochondral disease, and the second with Dr. Jenny Bouquier on Malvoparviflora toxicosis. Dr. Chris Riggs is Head of Veterinary Clinical Services at the Hong Kong Jockey Club. He's senior author of the paper titled Improved Radiological Diagnosis of Palmer Osteochondral Disease in the Thoroughbred Racehorse. This can currently be found in the Early View section of the EVJ website. Chris, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your recent paper. Um, can you start off by telling us a little about the pathophysiology of Palmer Osteochondral Disease, or POD, and explain why racehorses in particular are so susceptible to the condition? Yeah, sure. Uh, Palmer osteochondral disease is a very good example of a repetitive stress injury. And of course, a thoroughbred racehorse is predisposed to repetitive stress injuries because of the nature of their training and racing. A large number of cyclical high loads applied on a consistent, regular basis. And POD describes a condition where repetitive impact loading to the palmar aspect of the condyles of the cannon bone, so third metacarpal or third metatarsal bone, precisely actually at the point where the basilar half of the articular surface of the proximal sesamoid bones come into contact and load the condyles at maximum loading of the joint. And so there's this repetitive impact loading on the joint surface at the back of the fetlock as full load comes onto the joint, which results in progressive damage to the primarily subchondral and underlying bone. So, so far, what imaging modalities have been useful in diagnosing these lesions? Uh, well, when you get a, a, an extensive lesion, so you see different grades of pod that are determined by how far the condition has progressed. And it is an assumption that the different grades we see represent different stages of the same process. Of course, they could be different lesions, but that seems very unlikely. So we start off initially with just a post-mortem, you'll see a mild blue discoloration of subchondral bone through the overlying articular cartilage, which can itself look quite healthy. Uh, And then as it progresses, you get slight disruption to the articular surface with associated disruption of underlying deeper bone. Uh, And then ultimately, the subchondral bone collapses. It either fractures off as a flake or it implodes. It drops in, creating a cavity at the surface. Uh, And it's that more serious grade, grade three, that we can pick up. And we've been able to pick up for years on radiography as a radiolucent defect in the articular surface. However, lesser grades of the condition where you don't have any physical change to the structure or identifiable structural change can only really be picked up on scintigraphy, MRI, and perhaps CT, but not really with the radiography. And very often, even the more severe grade is overlooked on radiographs. So this paper investigates the accuracy of radiological diagnosis of pod lesions. What were your specific aims and hypotheses for this study? Well, we know that POD is very common in thoroughbred racehorses. In the population of horses we have in Hong Kong, 
it's well over 60% of horses at post-mortem, although the post-mortem findings are skewed and that only horses which have real problems are put down. Um, but uh, certainly among the population, we know that there's a high percentage of horses in ours and other people's jurisdictions that are affected by this condition. Now, it's not practical to do scintigraphic studies, MRI or CT studies on lots of horses. So really, if we could use radiography more effectively to diagnose horse, horses with this condition, in particular, diagnose them early so that we can then make recommendations for interventions that may prevent this more irreversible state occurring when the joint surface collapses, that would be very useful. So our hypothesis was that by studying radiographs and post-mortem specimens in great detail, we would be able to identify features on the radiographs that we were overlooking that we could use to help us be more specific uh, uh, and more sensitive in our detection of pod lesions on conventional radiographs. Okay, so can you talk us through the study design that you used? Yes, we, we selected horses that were being put down for various conditions. A lot of those had severe fetlock degenerative disease. A lot of them had severe tendon injuries, conditions which would, um, were judged to affect the horse's quality of life in retirement. Uh, and so if these horses were going to be put down, we wanted to make the very most we could. And so these horses, we took 50 of them and radiographed their fetlocks, a total of nine different projections of both front fetlocks following a standard protocol. And then when the horses were put down, the joints were dissected and the gross pathology was scored using a conventional score sheet. And then the um, joints were macerated by using boiling water so that we then could visualize directly mineralized tissues, mineralized cartilage and, and subchondral bone. And we had um, clinicians who were blinded to what the radiographs of each case were to read the radiographs and record what pathology they could see. But then at the same time had um, the primary um, author of the paper, Dr. Davis, Alex Davis, read the radiographs at the same time as looking at the macerated specimen. So she could very carefully correlate radiographic or radiological features with gross pathology that she could see on the specimen. And the idea of doing it that way was that we could then be more confident that we were not missing any features, radiological features. So you could see a small, small feature and, and consistently associate that with some gross pathology. And we call that the gold standard. Um, we then um, correlated the findings of clinicians with the findings from the gold standard to look at, at how sensitive and specific clinicians were at identifying certain radio radiological features and then in turn at going on and making a diagnosis of POD or not. So what features did you find identifiable radiologically were significantly associated with POD lesions? Well, uh, we divided the features up into two sorts, really. Primary features and those which are radiological features which are directly associated with the POD lesion itself. So these are typically radiolucencies in the palmar aspect of the condyle. So those radiolucencies occur because bone is missing. 
either because the articular surface has collapsed in or because a flake of articular surface has fractured off, creating an ulcer, which is uh, um, typical of a, of a severe grade three pod lesion. Also, we'd look for a um, disruption to the outline of the um, surface of the subchondral bone on the palmocondyles, again, which is reflective of that sort of change. And then also focal sclerosis of the palmar aspect of the condyles. So when uh, in the early stages of disease, as a, the early feature that happens is an in, intense um, infilling of bone, vascular spaces are filled with bone, uh, and that creates more radio-opaque area. So we could pick that up on the condyles. So those are the primary radiological features associated with POD. But then also identified that there are certain secondary features which are very commonly associated with the presence of a pod lesion. And the most important of these were formation of osteophytes on the base and apex margins of the proximal sesamoid bones, cavitation of the dorsodistal aspect of the third metacarpal bone, so just above the proximal limit of the dorsal surface of the third metacarpal bone, the articular surface, and then flattening of the outline of the palmar aspect of the condyles. So instead of having a nice consistent curve round, there could be a flat spot on that. So you found that on primary examination of the radiographs, um, there was quite poor identification of pod lesions, and this resulted in a low sensitivity and specificity. And um, I think you produced a training manual um, for the clinicians to work through and found that this um, improved and helped clinicians to diagnose this condition. So how do you think the training manual, um, how do you think working through the training, training manual improved this? Well, a, a main feature is to bring to the attention of the clinicians who were involved in the study that they were missing quite a lot of subtle radiological features and the significance of those features. So you might look at um, see osteophytes and just think, oh, well, that's just a degenerative change of the joint. And indeed it is, but certainly in the context of a racehorse, when you start to get big basilar osteophytes on the proximal sesamoid bones, that's very commonly associated. And we found had a, had a was a good indicator of the presence of a pod lesion in the condyles. So the training manual brought to the attention and illustrated to the clinicians the sort of radiological features that are associated with um, a, a primary pod lesion, but they would only really be visible, most of them, so the disruption in the outline of the subchondral bone and a radiolucent feature would only be visible in a more severe grade of pod, grade three, um, and then sclerosis of the condyle was a feature that could be picked up with a slightly lesser grade of pod, grade one or, or grade two as well. So we help them to identify exactly where to look for those features and what they look like. Uh, and there are various uh, images in the training manual that illustrated the sort of feature to study. And the sensitivity and specificity improved um, after this? They did improve, um, although... It, the, the study did illustrate the limitations of radiology, even with the very best um, uh, uh, scenario, even with the gold standard scenario, we could relate the features 
on the, the radiographs to the macerated specimen immediately there, the sensitivity and specificity was still not great for the lower grades of POD. And that's really, as I said, because those lower grades, which we, di- we, we um, diagnose post-mortem as discoloration of bone underlying the articular surface, are really just associated with increased remodeling of subchondral bone and mineralized cartilage, which is associated with either a net increase or a net decrease in volume fraction of bone, depending on how much has been resorbed or new bone has been laid down. So they're very, very difficult features to pick up by radiology alone. The main thing is is um, assisting clinicians in, in diagnosing a more, more severe lesion. So what did you find were the most useful radiographic projections to identify these various features of pod lesions? Oh, the, by far and away, the two or three most useful projections are uh, a flexed dorsopalmar projection. So with the cannon bone orientated vertically uh, and, the, and the pastin flexed and a slightly dorsodistal to proximal oblique projection, Skylining the palmar aspect, or the, just the distopalmar aspect of the condyles, is very good for illustrating disruption in the outline of the subchondral bone and radiolucent features in the condyles. The other radio, um, projections that were particularly useful was the um, steeply angled oblique projections. So about forty-five degree um, uh, dorso proximal, dorso lateral to distal um, 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 medial oblique and the opposite oblique, which are useful at separating the area of the condyle from overlying mineralized structures. So it separates it just in the window, highlights it in the window between the proximal aspect of P1 and the base of the proximal sesamoid bones. And that's useful particularly for looking for evidence of sclerosis of subchondral bone and the palmar aspect of the condyles. And then the other projection that's useful is the flexed lateral medial projection, again, looking for disruption in the outline and the contour of the subchondral bone. So if you are still unable to definitively diagnose pod lesions on radiographs, what would be your subsequent modality of choice? Probably MRI Nowadays, with the, the standing um, hallmark unit is easy to do and um, very good at illustrating lesions. We haven't done a study at looking at the sensitivity or specificity of, of that, but certainly gives us a lot more information. And I think the really critical case to identify is that which immediately um, precedes the collapse phase of the joint surface, so where you get a, a cavity forming in the subchondral bone space associated with coalescence of a whole load of resorption canals. Uh, And then you end up with the articular surface being unsupported in this focal region. And and if the horse goes into intense work with that, there's a danger then it will sustain the fracture, resulting in either flake of surface, bone surface coming off, or joint surface coming off, or the joint surface collapsing inwards. So if you identify that, you'd identify the real need for um, rest for that horse and, until the remodeling phase can be completed. Do you have an ultimate take-home message for us? Um, yes, the, the pod is very common 
in racehorses um, that you can identify a lot more on radiographs uh, than uh, with with knowledge of the sort of features that you see as primary and secondary um, changes. The secondary changes tend to be more easy to spot on radiographs, so it's easier to see an osteophyte on a radiograph than it may be to identify the area of sclerosis of the condyle. So if you see a big osteophyte on the base of the proximal sesamoid bones of a thoroughbred racehorse, it's almost certainly got a big pod lesion in there. Um, and it may be that would be a good case to refer, if appropriate, for a further detailed examination with MRI. Okay, Chris. Well, thank you for your time. Um, I'd encourage everyone to read through the excellent training manual you've produced, which is available in the supplementary information. Um, yeah, and thank you for joining us to discuss this. My pleasure. Dr. Jenny Bouquier is lecturer in equine medicine at the Melbourne Veterinary School, and she's joining us to talk about her recent paper titled Evidence for Marshmallow Malvoparva Fluorotoxicosis Causing Myocardial Disease and Myopathy in Four Horses. This can also currently be found in the early view section of the EVJ website. Hi Jenny, thank you for joining us today, this evening, or this morning, as in um, Australia, your end. You're here to discuss a paper um, where four horses from the same farm in southeastern Australia all suffered myocardial disease and myopathy from Malva parvifluorotoxicosis, which I found through the power of Google is known by many names, including cheeseweed, Egyptian mallow and small flowered mallow. So can you tell us a little bit about this plant um, and how it's proposed to cause these conditions? Of course, um, and thank you for having me. Um, so it's a, a pretty common weed, um, and it contains substances called cyclopropene fatty acids, which are found in um, just about all plants in the family um, which these plants belong. So those cyclopropene fatty acids or malvalic and stoculic acids, there are only two of them. Um, and we think that either these fatty acids or their metabolites interfere with beta oxidation. So it's the pathway by which energy is generated when animals are in a negative energy balance and breaking down body fat for energy, um, which then interferes with energy delivery to cells and especially muscle cells. Um, so this causes necrosis of, of muscle cells and, um, and heart muscle cells as well. So whereabouts can this plant be found worldwide and whereabouts um, specifically in Europe? Um, well, it seems to be found almost worldwide. Um, it's native to southern Europe, um, but it's been naturalised in, in lots of countries and, and most sorts of all major continents. Um, it likes sort of temperate Mediterranean and subtropical climates, so anywhere where those kind of climates occur um, you, you could expect to find it. Okay, so these four horses, as I, I said earlier, described in the study, they were all living at the same property and were the only four horses kept there. So could you describe the farm for us and give us an outline of the clinical cases? Yeah, so the, um, the horses on the farm were kept in a paddock where they had sort of little to no regular grass pasture, um, but they did have heavily, um, uh, there was heavy growth of 
of Malva parviflora in those paddocks where they were kept. And um, they had had their hay supplementation to severely cut back in sort of the week prior to the clinical signs developing. Um, so we hypothesised that they, because of this, they just started grazing lots and lots of the Malva parviflora and, and quite it was quite obviously very grazed down by the horses um, when um, John Gibney, our state um, veterinarian, who's an author on the paper as well, uh, visited the farm. Um, sorry? Sorry, so could you tell us about what happened with the clinical cases? Yeah, so the, the first horse uh, was seen by um, the referring veterinarian in the field for colic initially, um, and that horse had uh, muscle fix muscle fasciculations and some um, sweating which progressed and the horse um, eventually became recumbent um, despite some uh, treatment that they tried on the farm and they eventually ended up euthanizing that horse. The next day um, we had another horse from, from that property um, present to us with the same clinical signs. Um, so we had that horse in hospital for about 36 hours before, you know, with, with very similar signs, diffuse muscle fasciculations, um, diffuse sweating that would resolve when he lay down, but he could not remain standing for very long. Um, he also had cardiac arrhythmias, which um, began as supraventricular premature depolarizations and produced to multiform ventricular, and sorry, progressed to multiform ventricular tachycardia. Um, and he also developed an extensive um, choke, so an um, esophageal uh, feed impaction. Um, and eventually, when the, the ventricular arrhythmias were non-responsive to treatment, the owner elected to euthanize that horse as well. The third horse, um, uh, clinical signs developed on the following day after the second horse presented and they tried to load that horse to transport it for hospital care but it died very shortly um, after being loaded on the trailer so never made it to the hospital and then the fourth horse was clinically normal when it was transported to the referring veterinarian's hospital um, and it developed the same clinical signs the next morning and the owners elected to euthanize the horse at that point rather than trying to pursue treatment. And were there any interesting findings on blood results? Certainly. Um, so for the horses for which we had blood results, um, we had increases in, um, in the CK and AST. We also had uh, a pretty... Um, high CTNI in the um, horse that we had in hospital. So that was up around um, 167 with the normal range being less than 0.15 micrograms per litre. Um, both horses were also, both horses which we had blood were also mildly hypocalcemic um, and uh, those are sort of the, the most um, interesting findings I think. So what did you find on your post-mortem examinations? Did they suggest a common factor? Yeah, so post-mortem examinations, um, the most interesting lesions were, um, were on histopath and um, they suggested um, necrosis of um, skeletal and um, cardiac muscle. 
and um, the cardiac lesions were generally more severe than the skeletal muscle lesions. And um, we did do some um, fibre typing on the skeletal muscle and found that all of the affected fibres were type 1 or slow twitch muscle fibres, um, which, which fits quite nicely with the pathogenesis of this um, condition and also sort of explains why the animals were more severely affected when they were trying to stand up rather than lying down. Okay, so the results suggest that they all died from an acute myopathy and a cardiomyopathy. Um, and yep. in the paper, um, you've associated this with abnormal fatty acid oxidation, which could have been due to ingesting the mature fruit containing seeds on the Malva barbiflora plant. So what's your proposed mechanism behind this? Um, so all, part, all parts of the Malva parvifora plant contain cyclopropene fatty acids, so they seem to be most concentrated in the seeds. Um, and certainly one of our um, cases had quite a large accumulation of these seeds in the ventral colon on postmortem. Um, so we think the cyclopropene fatty acids or their metabolites um, interfere with beta oxidation and that they do this by inhibiting one of the key enzymes in this pathway. So there are lots of different enzymes that um, cleave fatty acids of different chain lengths. And um, from the acylcarnitine profiles that we got, um, it would seem that the enzyme that's inhibited is very long chain um, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase, which is the first enzyme in that pathway. Um, and um, so we think that because of these, um, because of the structure of the cyclopropene fatty acids um, or perhaps metabolites that they produce, um, that the um, three carbon ring with the double bond in that structure um, somehow interferes with the function of that enzyme when it tries to, um, to cleave those fatty acids. So a similar condition has previously re been reported in sheep grazing on pastures where this plant also grows. Um, have any cases um, in sheep survived the toxicosis? Uh, yes, certainly um, some sheep have been reported to survive and the um, reports that are in the literature about this on sheep tend to um, describe, describe it manifesting as a staggers-like syndrome um, and collapse during moving of flocks that have been grazing on this weed. Um, and some sheep certainly die in that process as well, but um, some survive as long as they're sort of left to, um, you know, recover and rest and, and are not stressed. Um, the postmortem lesions in those reports in the sheep are, are very similar to, to what we saw in the horses. Um, and I have um, also heard anecdotal reports of horses surviving, however, none of those cases have had confirmed diagnoses um, because of our small numbers. It's a bit hard to say at this point whether or not some horses you know, could survive and, and certainly if you know, they're less severely affected, perhaps they could. So atypical myopathy is another condition associated with a disorder of fatty acid oxidation and cardiac disease. So what are the main differences between these conditions and will we be able to detect the difference um, upon clinical presentation? Um, clinically, I think it's impossible to tell the difference between 
um, atypical myopathy and malvofluorotoxicosis. Um, I, I think they present clinically very similarly. Um, our horses possibly had a, a more severe cardiac component to their disease, but you know, obviously our numbers are very small and um, cardiomyopathy certainly occurs in atypical myopathy as well. Um, An acylcarnitine profile is really needed to determine which enzymes in the beta oxidation pathway are affected and, and then that can help distinguish which toxin is causing the disease. So the metabolite of hyperglycin A, which causes atypical myopathy, interferes with multiple enzymes in that pathway um, of beta oxidation, which generates a different acylcarnitine profile to the one that we obtain from our horses. And so you would need to do that to be able to, to tell them apart. Okay, and ultimately, how can we prevent this from happening um, in cases? Yeah, I think it's um, easier said than done to just remove all of the weed. And certainly if it's you know, growing extensively and, and we see it growing extensively in areas where pastures are generally poor, there's not a lot of other pasture around. Um, so, I mean, removing it would be the best thing to do, but that's not necessarily... Um, feasible in a lot of situations. So I think um, if, if that can't be done, the most important thing is to ensure that horses have plenty of supplementary feed um, because I don't think they'll typically eat this weed unless they have nothing else to eat. Um, so if as long as they have plenty of other feed to eat and, and they're not in a negative energy balance, um, then I think that's sort of the most, um, most important things to provide for horses to prevent this from happening. Okay, Jenny, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us again for the next edition.